1: A uh, couple of things I want to give you some just an, a brief outline of where we're going tonight for the next few minutes. Where we're going, um, first is this: our identity as believers is found in our oneness with each other in Christ. Our identity as believers is found in our oneness with each other in Christ. If you noticed in that text that Christian read. Over and over, Jesus prayed that we would be one as he and the Father are one. That's not sort of an enigmatic but cool, mysterious, interesting idea that we just get to go, huh, we're one as Jesus and the Father are one. There are real-life implications that apply to every single one of us when we think about how the Father and Jesus are one and how that relates to us. Our identity is rooted in one another as fellow Jesus followers. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, and it's related. Our lived out oneness with each other is... I'm sorry, I just totally misread that. Our lived out oneness with each other is Christ's visible presence in our world today. The way we live out our oneness with each other, our shared identity in Jesus, the way that we live that out is Christ's physical presence, visible presence, not physical, but visible presence in our world today. So I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um, First, I want to say this. Some people have asked, and this is a good question, you guys have been in John chapter 17, Jesus is asking the Father to do things. He's asking the Father for things. If Jesus is God, why does Jesus have to pray to God, and why does he have to submit to God and wait on God for God to do things? And the answer is really simple. It's complex, but it's simple. We live in a world Of total and complete brokenness evidenced by our children. Um, We live in a world that is in rebellion against God. That's the world that we live in. We live in a world where everyone, the Bible says, has fallen short of the glory of God. Every person. No matter how well behaved you are, no matter how involved in your church that you are, you have fallen. You are broken. We need redemption. Jesus came and did what none of us could do. He perfectly submitted his life to the Father, and he is showing us. He is doing it for us. He is putting himself in our place, submitting himself to God Almighty for us because we Can't do it. And everything that Jesus gets because of his perfect obedience to God, if we put our trust in him, we get everything that Jesus gets. He earned it for us. He did it for us. So this idea that I've got to get cleaned up before I come to Jesus is completely unbiblical. Jesus did it for us. As a matter of fact, Jesus wants you when you are at your dirtiest. He wants you and desires you when you are your most shameful. When you are ridden with toxic shame over your behavior, over your downfalls, over all the stuff that you struggle with, Jesus wants to be with you. He loves you. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to change you. Jesus is good and merciful. And so I want to invite you, as we spend the next few minutes in these six verses, to feel these words with me. I want want to encourage you, because if you're sitting here right now like me, you're going to go to a party afterwards. It would be easy to try to power through this service so you can get to the good part of the night. I want to encourage you to turn your heart to bend your heart around God's word for the next few minutes as together we worship him and feast at his feet. Let's do that. Would you do that with me? So look at verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So for the 19 verses in front of this, Jesus has been praying specifically for his disciples that he's been leading. He's been praying for the 11 because Judas has now betrayed him, which was prophesied by Scripture. He's praying for all the other disciples who are with him, who have followed him over the last several years. And now he's thinking into the future and he's thinking about us. He's thinking about the people who would believe in him through his messengers. Now, I want to invite you to feel the weight of that. Jesus is on his way, if he's not there yet, to the garden of Gethsemane, where he will be so terrorized by fear that his body will sweat blood droplets on a rock. And as he is making his way toward his passion, as we call it, what is on his mind is not getting us to heaven. That's not what he's thinking about. Does he want us to go to heaven? Of course he does. But that's not what Jesus is thinking about. He's thinking about not just his disciples. He's not just thinking about getting the strength from God in prayer in order to endure the path before him, a bloody path. He's thinking about you and he's thinking about me. And he's saying, God, I've got a few things to say about them. I've got a few things to say about Bernice and Chris and Val and Sherry and John and Bud and all those folks in the future. I want to talk to you for a few minutes about them before this all comes to a head and I die. And so I want you to feel that for a second. Allow that to wash over you. Uh, Richard Foster, a really great author, he wrote a book on prayer. He said this, Using the imagination brings the emotions into the equation. I want you to imagine yourself in this text. So that we can come to God with both mind and heart. And then he goes on to say this, It's vitally important to understand Scripture intellectually. Intellectually. But if we have not felt it emotionally, we have not fully understood it. So don't just think about this. Don't just be a learner tonight. Be a feeler tonight. Be a feeler. Be a feeler. Insert yourself in this text. And so I want to get on to our first point. Our identity as believers is found in our oneness with each other in Christ. Look at verses 21 through 23 again. He says this. This is his prayer. This is what he's praying for all of us into the future. That they may be one, all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now this is stunning to me. He's not saying, let them be one like me and you are one in the sense that I repeat your truth he's saying in the same way that we father god and the spirit who is present in all of these writings in the same way that we are one we are of the same essence theologians for hundreds of years when the church was birth couldn't figure out exactly the nature of god because of all of these all of these statements in scripture jesus is submitted to the father yet jesus is god how does all this work together it's a mystery And Jesus is praying, God, in the same way that we are one by the Spirit, all of my followers are also one. Whoa. I'm not saying whoa because I'm the preacher and I'm paid to be in awe of this text. This really blows my mind because I don't know what that means. I don't know if anybody could explain that. I don't know if anybody could. Jesus frequently spoke of unity with the Father. He, he spoke of it throughout all of us, all these writings, all the Gospels. He imitated God. He obeyed God. He waited on God to direct him. He sought to know God's will and had a perfect grasp of God's will. He possessed God's heart. He was disposed to serve God. He craved intimacy with God. He sought to glorify God and he anticipated his reunion with God following his resurrection. He was in union with God. In the same way, our oneness with God is similar not just with Jesus, but with one another. We are one. We are in unity with one another even if we don't act like it. Sometimes. That's why Jesus prays later in the text, make them perfectly one, Lord, because he knows we're not perfectly one. Spiritually, we're one, but we still have to learn how to live it out. And so, this is what we're learning to do. This is, I think you could call this discipleship. We are learning to imitate one another in Christ, we are learning to stir up love and good works in Christ. We are learning to make ourselves known to one another in vulnerable relationships and seeking to know one another's hearts. We are growing in a disposition towards serving one another. We are learning to reject the world's idea of the good life, possessions, riches, security, pleasure, and learning to live out the truth that what the good life really is is heart-to-heart communion with one another. That's the good life. It's the good life. Sometimes that's hard to believe. Sometimes in our unbelief, we can't accept that. Having a new car feels better than going to a community group. It feels better than that sometimes. But this is why we must lean in to who we are as God's people. We must lean into that. I want to talk about the how of that in just a minute, in just a minute. But more than us being unified in our actions, we're learning how to serve, we're learning how to submit, we're learning all this other stuff. There's something beyond that. Jesus and God are one being. Remember when Ron Surgeon was preaching a couple of years ago, he had three cups. He had the Father, the Son, and us. They were all labeled that. And he kept sticking them into one another. Jesus is in the Father, we're in the Son. The Father is in the Son. We're in the Father. The Father's in us. Jesus is in the Father. It's hard to understand because we have no category to compare it to in our world. There's nothing like God. There's nothing like the Trinity. Nothing in our world. Nothing. Nothing. And in the same way he says that they are one, we are one with one another in some mysterious and supernatural way. That is incredible to me if we allow ourselves to think about it. We are one as Jesus and the Father are one. And then Jesus gives the payoff. He says, here's the reason why I'm praying that they may be one. This is why. That the world may believe that the Father sent Jesus. So here's the question. How is me and you being one proof to the world that the Father sent Jesus? Let me put it this way. For millennia, the world wondered what does the one true God look like? What does he think about things? What is God like? What does he think? What does God think about marriage? What does God think about kids? What does God think about money? What does God think about all the terrible tragedies that take place in this world? What does God think about that? Does God have an answer for that? Why do these things happen when there is a creator? God, there's an answer for all of this. Not always a satisfying answer, but there's an answer. And God sent his son Jesus so that people, for the first time, would understand what God is like And it was shocking. Because in Jesus' first teachings, he did not say this: I am here to destroy evil people. He didn't say that. He didn't say, I am here to skewer people who are who practice injustice. He didn't say that. He said, Love your enemies. He said, the people who are going to inherit this earth are not going to be the violent and the angry and the tyrants and the controllers and the manipulators. They they aren't going to inherit this earth when I'm done with it. It's going to be the meek that will inherit the earth. You see, when Jesus was saying the meek will inherit the earth or blessed are the peacemakers or turn your cheek when you experience daily insults, he wasn't just giving us new rules. He was showing us Who God looks like. This is the way of the living God. He's different than all of those primitive wooden statues. He's different than all of the man- and women-made ideas of what God is and what he's like. He's different than that. He is totally mind-boggling. God, in all of his ways, has no comparable category. How can it be that the creator of the universe is humble? How can it be that the God who said, Let there be light... And light shone in the universe and later stars exploded billions and billions of miles apart. How is it that this God with unlimited power is willing to bleed in our skin? Jesus is showing us what God is like. Well, here's the thing. Jesus physically isn't here right now. In this text, all through 26 of these verses of John, of this prayer, Jesus' high priestly prayer, as some theologians call it, he says, I've come to manifest God. And he says at the end of this text, I'm still manifesting the Father. What's he saying? As he's praying for us, you and me, 2,000 years and beyond into the future, He is still indwelling us, desiring to manifest the Father's face to our world. He desires to manifest the Father's name to our world. He desires to manifest the Father's ways to our world. An almighty God who is a peacemaker. A God whose power knows no limitation, who is one who loves his enemies. That God. And as we are walking out our oneness together, learning to love one another, that's part of our vision statement of our church, that we are learning to love one another. We purposely put it that way because we wanted to just say, hey, we're not here to change the world. We're here to do what God's told us to do. We don't have delusions of grandeur. We are one part of the church of planet Earth. We're one part of it. We're going to change what God has called us to change. Our community, the people who come to church and gather with us, we're going to do what God's called us to do. Yeah, we're going to make an impact in world missions, locally with some justice initiatives. But we don't have delusions of grandeur here. We want to stay humble and stay meek. We are learning to serve one another, and we're learning to love one another. We don't do that well at times at our church, but we're learning that. We're wanting Jesus' prayer, God, perfect their oneness. We want that prayer to be answered in our church. Help us to be one. I think that any church that is legitimate should have tons of stories of people who fix their relationships with one another. Tons of stories. I don't think that a good church never has stories like that. A good church, tension shouldn't take place. In a good church, people don't get mad at each other. In a good church, relationships aren't broken. In a good church, people don't get divorced. In a good church, this and that. That's not what I see in the scriptures. What I see in the scriptures is that a quote, good church is a church made up of broken people who are walking the way of Jesus and who are working really hard at walking that path, restoring relationships with one another. That's what a good church looks like. And that brings us to our second point. Our lived out oneness with each other is Christ's visible presence in our world today. I love the verses, 1 Corinthians 13, 7 and 8. My parents made me memorize it when I was a kid, and to this day, it's one of my, the handles of my theology of how I think about God. Listen to to the words of these two verses. Listen, Listen to this really closely. Feel these verses. Love bears all things. The Apostle Paul, anointed by the Spirit, is writing these words to a church. He's having to remind them, hey, 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 hey. Remember, remember who you are. Love bears all things. I know you don't want to bear with people right now. But love bears all things. Don't forget that. Love bears all things. Good churches don't mean you're not going to have to bear things. Good churches mean that you're going to have the spiritual maturity to learn how to bear things. That's what happens in good churches, whatever a good church is. Love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. Never ends. Love lasts forever. You take eternity, and love is just as long because that's who He is. He's love. That's who He is. So I want you to notice the driving concern in Jesus' message here that He wants us to be one together, He wants us to be together, He wants us to do life together. What does it look like to be one? If I stand up here and say, hey, we're one in the Spirit, you can go, amen, cool, that sounds awesome. What's the next point? Give me something I can use, Chris. Well, I'm giving you something right now that you can use. I'm giving you something right now that Jesus is praying right now to the Father, Lord, make them one as we are one. Did you notice that before Jesus died, he didn't say, Lord, please take my children to heaven. He didn't say that. In America, that's what we lead off with. Jesus is saying, here's at the the center of my heart, I want my children to be one with one another because as they're one, the world is going to see them and get a glimpse of the face of my father. Despite our imperfections, despite our flaws, despite the fact that sometimes repairing a relationship takes months or even years. That as we walk that path, we are giving the world Glimpses of the Father. Glimpses of the Father. I want to finish by uh, challenging you. I said this on Sunday, and I want to say it again. A bunch of y'all are going to be tempted to subscribe to some sort of Bible reading plan in the coming year. Chances are, just going on data, chances are many of us are going to fizzle out pretty quickly. We're not going to stay with that plan. One of the reasons is, is because there's a lot of the Bible that we don't understand. There's a lot of the Bible, if you've been raised in the church, you'll come across stories that you've heard a thousand times. And it's hard to dive into that story when you're so familiar with it. It's hard to dive into it. My kids wanted to watch Home Alone last night. I'm like, I can't take it anymore. I cannot take Home Alone. It's not even funny to me anymore. I just, I can't take it. I've seen that movie 10,000 times. It's hard to engage in something that we're so over-familiar with. And this is why we're challenging the people at our church. We want to give you a pathway. I don't know if you noticed uh, Ron Surgeon's latest blog on our website. He's our most faithful blogger. And um, he was talking about how um, in the church, commonly, our preachers will get up and say, hey, you need to do this, 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 and this. And we'll tell people what they need to do all the time but we're not real good at showing people how to do it. And he challenges that assumption. He challenges that and says, hey, what we need to do is to learn how to find a pathway. There's a pastor named Tim Keller. He said this, something like this, rather than looking for a doorway, look for a pathway. You see, our church culture has taught us to look for enlightenment. Moments where we are dazzled. In church services, or by God, or something. That's good. Those are good things. I was dazzled by the gospel, and that brought me to faith in Jesus. I'm so thankful for that dazzling. But we're not called to look to be dazzled, to be mystified. What we're called to do is to look for a path. And that's one of the reasons why in Jesus' first recorded sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about not moments of enlightenment, but The narrow path. And he's calling people, follow me on this path. Walk with me on this path. Take up new habits with me. Take up new practices with me and you will be changed. At least that's the implication. You will be changed. You will be a different kind of person if you submit to me, believe in me, and submit to my path, my process, my system. Follow me. And so we're asking our people, rather than engage the Bible in such a way where you're going to feel a lot of shame and guilt because you don't read enough Bible and you don't pray enough, I'm asking our people to take me up on a challenge. Make it a commitment of yours to be at the church every single time we have church. Quit skipping. Quit laying out one or two Sundays a month. For 2,000 years, for 2,000 years, the church has been gathering together on the Lord's day. The first disciples, those Jewish believers in Jesus, made a change from going on Saturday to synagogue to going on Sunday because that was the day that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead and that was part of their tradition, their practice. I want to be real clear. If you miss, I'm not mad at you. I'm not praying for you because you're in sin and I think you're going to hell. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. But I am asking you to embrace the process of discipleship because I promise you, you can read your Bible till the cows come home, but something significant would shift in your life if you made a decision, I'm gonna to go to the gathering every single time. I mean, I'm not saying you can't miss when you're sick or you're on vacation or something like that, but quit staying home or quit staying up late on Saturday night and skipping on Sunday morning. Stop doing that. Stop doing that. Be with the body of believers. Gather together. Sing to God together. Listen to the words that you're singing. Take the Lord's Supper together and seriously contemplate what you're doing. Listen to the preached word of God. And then rather than anything else, I challenge you to do this. Listen to the podcast once, maybe even twice in the week. Be a part of a community group. Just be with people. Notice I'm not asking you to cut time out of your schedule and make sure you pray for 15 minutes, read the Bible for 30 minutes. In the early church, they didn't have Bibles laying on their bookshelves. They didn't have that. I know we do today. I am not saying don't read the Bible. But I am saying this. What if we as a community read the Bible together? Some of the most powerful times I've been influenced by the scriptures has been when I've gathered around God's word with God's people. When I'm by myself, I feel like a knucklehead when I'm trying to pray. But when I'm with people, something is different. I'm encouraged. I'm stirred up. I'm with God's people. I'm with Jesus himself. I'm encouraging you to make this your new discipline in the coming year. Quit signing up for Bible plans that you're going to break and feel guilt over. When you read the Bible, think about it and read it. Don't ask God to, do, to, to, to show out in a way or dazzle you. Just be faithful with reading the Bible when you read the Bible. But what I'm asking our church to do is to dive in to the practice of being together. It is my deep, deep belief that the number one primary practice of following Jesus is gathering with Jesus' people consistently and worshiping him together is my sincere belief. I have experienced the most transformation in my life because I am with people, with them, with them. So I'm I'm challenging you to do that. We want you to walk the path of discipleship and live out the prayer that Jesus prayed. Oh God, make them one as we are one. Make them one.